just people write it different ways. Uh, right, these things, he who, says the sharp, he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, written which no one knows except him who receives it. Well, this is Jesus' message. When you get a message, you want to respond in the right way. And as I've said a couple of times lately, some of the times you'll get a, a wrong phone number. Some of you gotten those before. You get a wrong text. I uh, found a couple this week that were a little bit humorous. So one person uh, texted the wrong person and said, uh, Jessica, and Jessica didn't respond, question mark, Jessica, and then got this in response. Do I look like Jessica? <laughs> Those of y'all who are on Facebook Live, it's a guy with a mustache, and so that's probably not Jessica. Somebody else said, hey, Tessia, sorry I've missed your calls. We're going to skip Prince's camp because we signed Bailey up for a few other things. Here's what they got in response. That's okay. I'm not the Prince's camp type anyways. <laughs> Wrong number. Another guy with some facial hair there. Here's one of my favorite ones. Somebody writes, can you text me some pictures of me that you have in your phone that we took last night? And uh, the person wrote back, who is this? And she wrote, Dorothy. And so they got this picture back. <laughs> now, that's somebody with a sense of humor right there, right? It's a picture of Dorothy and Tin Man and the uh, Cowardly Lion. So those are some interesting ways to respond uh, to a text. But Jesus is sending a letter to the churches. And when you get into Revelation, um, I really think this is the heart of what we really want to grab onto because revelation is about revealing jesus we want to know what his purpose is what his heart is for us as a church and when you get to the letters of the seven churches what you have here is jesus's instructions jesus's heart he tells us what things that are going well what things are not going well and so uh where a lot of people want to read revelation try to figure out when jesus is coming back and that's really not the purpose of revelation you can get some ideas of some things that are going to happen in the future but we really need to have the heart of god that before he comes back, because we're expecting to come back at any time. We should be ready for him to come back whenever. I mean, tonight he could come back. Tomorrow he could come back. The first uh, century Christians thought he was coming back in their generation. Every generation of Christians have looked for him in their generation, and we're right to do so. We, we were to expect him to come back. We're to live expectantly. And in the meantime, though, how do we live out our faith? How do we live out as Jesus' followers so that not only will we be ready, but we'll have as many people ready as we possibly can uh, to meet the Lord when he comes? So what Jesus is looking for is for churches to respond to him in love, faith, and obedience. That's what he says. He sends the letters out, and this is what he wants us to respond with, not listen, uh, not only, not just to get smarter, not just to learn stuff, but to respond to him. Revelation 2, 29, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, 
as Jesus writes to these churches, seven churches, real churches of, uh, of, his, of his day, of, of this particular day when John wrote, I think this represents any church anywhere at any time. We need to, the, the key here is to say, where are we? What things are we doing well that Jesus commends in these churches and celebrate that? What things that Jesus tells them to repent from that we need to repent from? And so we need to read his letter to the, to the churches as if he's writing to us to locate ourselves in the midst of these letters because, man, you know, this is kind of like his last letter to the churches, right? And so Jesus is sharing his heart, the resurrected Christ is sharing his heart with some churches. He's not talking about superficial things. He's going to the heart of what's on his heart. And anybody who loves God, follows Jesus, should want to know what's on the heart of God. What does Jesus want for his churches? And so last time, two weeks ago, we looked at Ephesus. And uh, God um, said, man, look, you guys are working hard. You're not giving up. You're busy. You have good doctrine. But they had left their first love. And uh, we saw that could be a, that really should be a devastating thing to hear, right? You don't love me like you used to. Um, we should be growing in love. He should be, it should be sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. And so we want to grow in our love, not back off of our love for Jesus. And last week we looked at the church at Smyrna, and uh, interesting church, one of, the, one of only two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, Jesus had no, nothing for them to repent of, no words of, of correction for them. Uh, Smyrna was being persecuted, uh, and Jesus said, I'm going to keep being persecuted. Didn't promise them an easy out. You're going to keep promise, you're going to keep being persecuted, but be faithful. And so Jesus was kind of the well done. Why? Because you're being faithful. Faithfulness is what he prizes. So then we're going to look tonight at the, at the uh, third church, the church at Pergamum. And this is really the church that's being tempted to compromise. The church that's being tempted uh, to compromise. The city of Pergamum uh, was steeped in pagan practices, a lot of pagan gods, a lot of pagan religions going on there. And it was a real challenge to live as a Christian in the city of Pergamum. One interesting thing about Pergamum, uh, it had the world's largest library in its day. It had over 200,000 volumes in their library. Now remember, these are written on scrolls of parchment. In fact, the word parchment comes from Pergamum. That's uh, where we kind of get the word from. And so it had one of the world's largest libraries at it. And um, we want to look at it and see what Jesus said. So let's read it one more time and get kind of in our heart what Jesus says to this church. Very real people. Um, here's this letter read in their church. And he says to the angel, the angel means the messenger. It's either uh, someone bringing the letter or it's the pastor or it's a literal angel that's going to somehow get the message to him. To the angel of the church at Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who's victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one 
who receives them. So Pergamum's a, a city of wealth, it's a city of culture, and a city of great spiritual darkness. It was an evil city. I mean, it's really hard to hear what he says. He says, this is a city where Satan's throne dwells. Now, guys, where Satan's throne is, is a tough place to be a Christian. And Jesus commends them for being faithful even in the midst of this evil, evil city. They had been uh, faithful. There was a guy named Antipas. We don't know who Antipas is or was. Now, nothing is recorded of him of history. But as a Jesus follower, he was put to death in their city. Probably one member of their church, right? Probably somebody's brother, somebody's dad, maybe somebody's son. And so they watched this guy get put to death because he was a follower of Jesus. And the church stayed faithful. They didn't quit. They didn't give up. This is a tough, tough place. And we can see here from Pergamon and from Smyrna that what Jesus values is faithfulness. God builds his church on faithful people. It's one of the things that everybody can do. Everybody can be faithful. And it's not just being faithful to church. It's being faithful to Christ himself. And that's what God's looking for in our day and time. People who will not compromise on their faithfulness to Christ. You see, if I see church simply as a place that I probably should go and you know, I was taught to go there when I was little and it's my responsibility to go, that's one thing. But if I see it as an extension of my faithfulness to Jesus, which it is, that changes the whole thing. If you see your service on a committee or teach at a Sunday school class or whatever, if you see that as a church responsibility, that's one thing. But if you see it as a faithful work to Jesus, which it is, then that's something else. If you see your quiet time as a daily discipline, that's one thing. But if you see it as a faithful time you spend along with Jesus, that changes everything. And so what we want to learn to see in our lives is that what God calls us to do, we're being faithful to Christ. That's the big deal. You see, if you're in a situation where people are talking about things that really are not godly and they're saying things that aren't true about Christianity and everybody's kind of agreed and you're the only Christian in the crowd, it's just not about you. It's about Will you be faithful to be the witness for Christ in that situation? When you get a nudge from the Holy Spirit, it's not just about are you embarrassed, are you afraid, or anything like that. It is will you be faithful to Christ in the middle of that situation when everybody else is acting in an ungodly way and you know they go to church and you know they're supposed to be Christians but they're acting this way and you're tempted to compromise and act that way as well. The choice is not am I going to act like them or am I going to be true to my beliefs? Am I going to be true to Christ? We have a personal relationship with Jesus and it it really is about relationship, faithfulness to Christ. I read about a car crash here a while back. And uh, in the car crash was a little two-year-old border collie named Tilly. And uh, Tilly was thrown out of the car crash, of course, scared to death, ran off, and uh, they couldn't find her. They were so worried about her little, their little border collie who got thrown out of the car, couldn't find her, looked around far. They found her three days later herding sheep in a nearby pasture. <laughs> she, she was lost, she was confused, but she knew what she was supposed to do, right? <laughs> she was faithful to her job, even though she didn't know where she was. And that's kind of the idea. You might be confused, you might not know what's going on, but you can be faithful to Jesus right where you're 
at. As a Jesus follower, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes the job's hard. Sometimes the emotions are hard. Sometimes the marriage is hard or the friendship or the finances. But even in the hard places, even when you're not sure what God's up to, be faithful to Jesus and let him worry about the outcomes. Now, he says, this is where Satan's throne is. Now, what does he mean by that? We don't really know. Seven mentions several ideas of what he could mean by this, where Satan's throne is. One is, Pergamum was one of the first cities to embrace emperor worship. And they had strong loyalty to the emperor. They had strong loyalty to emperor worship, which meant the citizens of Pergamon would have to come uh, appear before the city officials probably once a year, maybe more in Pergamon, and uh, take a pinch of incense, offer it to Caesar. Caesar is the ruler of Rome, the human ruler of Rome, and say, Caesar is Lord. Now, do you see the problem for the Christians, don't you? Jesus is Lord. And, and, and as I said, this is one of the first cities to adopt emperor worship. They had strong ties, strong loyalties to Rome. And so as long as you worship Caesar, you could worship other gods. They had the whole Greek pantheon of gods. But Caesar was the one that, that meant everything. Now, if you did not do that, if you were willing, if you weren't willing to say Caesar is Lord, then you could very easily, probably, very probably, you would lose your citizenship. And probably you lose your prospects for any kind of meaningful job. And so all of a sudden, you're really an outcast in this city. So very likely that this is what it's talking about. This probably, I mean, it's very likely that this is what happened to Antipas. We don't know that, but somehow know that he got in trouble. And so probably what it says, this is where Satan's throne is. It's probably referring to their strong ties to Rome, their strong ties to emperor worship. That's probably the biggest thing. A couple of other suggestions, though. One is there was a magnificent altar to the god Zeus. Zeus was the head god of the Greek mythology of gods. And at the highest place on the Acropolis in Pergamon, there was what's called one of the wonders of the ancient world. There was this huge altar to Zeus. It was shaped like a throne. They say that it just it dominated, just kind of looking out over the city, dominated the city. It was the largest and most famous altar in the world at that time. And so they would oftentimes put their worship of the false gods in the high places, so that's where it was. And so it may be that this is what he's talking about when he said this is where Satan's throne is. There's another, there's another possibility that is a little creepy. Uh, there was also a god called Asclepius. The god of Asclepius was the god of healing. And uh, he was called the Pergamese god. He was especially known to, to Pergamon, especially famous in Pergamon. And people came uh, from all over to Pergamon to be healed by the god Asclepius. Now, interesting, it's a really a weird gig. The symbol for Asclepius is a snake. If you've ever seen the medical symbol of a pole with a snake wrapped around it, that's, that, that harkens back to Asclepius. Now, the, you know, I've never often wondered, why is there a snake around a healing pole? And uh, there is one that has two snakes, and that's not the Asclepius one. The one that has the one snake is the Asclepius one. One of the things they did, one of the things the followers of Asclepius did, uh, whenever they, uh, people come there to, to be healed, you would go into the temple of Asclepius, and you would sleep there that night with the snakes. They would have numbers of non-poisonous snakes, harmless snakes, and all God's people said there are no harmless snakes. <laughs> and you would lay on the floor, 
And those snakes would crawl around over you, and that's how you got to be healed. That sounds satanic, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that sounds, and, and I mean, this is how, and you know, we think about uh, a snake on a pole. We think about in numbers when the people disobeyed God, and God sent the vipers to bite them. He put a snake on a pole for them to look at and to believe in him and to be healed. But these snakes actually did that. So this, this is, that, that, that sounds satanic, doesn't it? So... It's probably emperor worship, but you put that together with this magnificent altar of Zeus, put that together with Asclepius, and you could tell from this position this was an evil city. This was a hard place to be a Christian, right? And so we want to understand in our day, I don't know where Satan's throne is. Satan's throne is not in hell. Satan is not incarcerated today. He is operational on the earth. Now, I doubt, see, we talk about fighting the devil. I doubt seriously any of us have ever fought the devil himself. The devil is a created being. He can only be in one place at one time. Uh, I don't know where his throne would be today. Is it North Korea? Is it Afghanistan? Is it Russia? Is it China? Is it America? I don't know where his throne is on earth today. I don't know if this means that Satan literally had a command center set up there or just he had a huge influence in the city. Uh, we do know this. Satan's a real being, and he's evil. There is, there is such a thing as real personal evil. And Satan will be bound in the, in the future, but it's not now. Now, while you may not have fought Satan himself, you probably have done battle with a demon or two, okay? He's not everywhere. Satan can't be everywhere at one time. He can only be in one place at one time. But he has operational demons and, uh, you know, hierarchy of demons all throughout the world. And so we have to understand if these guys, watch this, if these guys in Pergamon that God commended for being faithful, if they can be faithful there, then we can be faithful here. That's what God's looking for. That's what God honors. That's what Jesus says to the churches. Stay faithful to me no matter how difficult that it gets. Now, tough place. So there was two issues that bothered Jesus about this church. We'll look at them tonight. Two issues that bothered Jesus. First of all, the church tolerated some people that held to the teaching of Balaam. The teaching of Balaam. Balaam represents covetousness and compromise. Covetousness is compromised. You go back to Numbers 21 to 23 is where you really find out about Balaam. Balaam was a prophet, and uh, the, the uh, Israelites were going through the, through the land of Moab. They had a king called Balak, and Balak was worried about all these Israelites that's on the way, to the Red sea, you know, on the way from the Red Sea to the Promised Land. And so he wants the Israelites to be destroyed. He's afraid of them coming through his land. He knows this guy named Balaam who's a prophet, and so he hires Balaam to curse Israel. And so Balaam comes out uh, to curse Israel, but God won't let him. He tries to curse them, but he ends up blessing them. And, uh, and so Balak gets mad at him. He says, man, what are you talking? I hired you to curse Israel. So he goes out. Three times he goes out. This is the guy that on the third time, an angel tried to stop him. He couldn't see the angel, but his donkey did. Do I remember this story? And the donkey laid down. And Balaam beat his donkey, and the donkey said, man, why are you beating me? I've never disobeyed you before, which would have freaked me out, right? 
I can't I understand how the man had a conversation with his donkey, which means if God can speak through a donkey, don't revere your preacher very highly, okay? It means God can use anybody, right? God can use me and you to speak his word. And so uh, his donkey laid down, and, t- and his donkey's like, man, you, know, you should be beating me. God, you, you know God's trying to tell you not to do this. And so... Uh, Balaam was trying to work for money. He was trying to go against God for money. Anytime you try to disobey God for money, you're on a bad place, right? We cannot seek first the kingdom of God and seek first money and seek first finances and seek first our, our comfortableness and, uh, and finances. We cannot do that. Second Peter uh, 2.15 says that Balaam... Love the wages of unrighteousness. Love the wages of unrighteousness. So uh, God wouldn't let him curse them. But you know what he did? You don't find this out to you know, way over to Numbers 31. Balaam said, God won't let me curse them. But here's what you do. Get your women to entice the Israelite men to sleep with them and God will curse them. And that's what they did. The Moabite women went in and enticed Israelite men to sleep with them, which means what? Worship their gods, do their kind of thing. This is compromise, right? And what happened was they couldn't get beaten from the outside, but when they compromised on the inside, God disciplined them. And guys, that's true for us today. Satan cannot defeat God's church from the outside. He can't. We are built on the rock of Jesus Christ. We stay faithful to God. We stay where God wants us to be. We obey God. We don't put money first or popularity first, what people think about us first. We obey God. God takes care of us. But when we compromise and we disobey and we get off track and we leave our first love and all those kinds of things, then what happens? We end up falling from the inside. We crumble from within. So that's the first thing compromise just cuss a little bit to fit in just back off your quiet time a little bit watch a little bit of that that God convicted you not to don't say that thing God nudged you to say to somebody stop praying out loud with people lie just a little bit back off a serving God just a just quit just don't be so faithful just just compromise what happens when you compromise a little bit so much easier to keep sliding that direction, isn't it? And so, first of all, it was the problem with, um, with Balaam, a compromising of sexual immorality and covetousness. Second thing, he said they held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, verse 15. They also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we're not really positive what that is. There's no uh, firm historical record of what the Nicolaitans did. Probably one of two things. The Nicolaitans probably either either taught grace, God's forgiven you, to, to the extreme. God's forgiven you, live any way you want to. You know, it's, it's, it's the idea of, well, I can go ahead and sin because God's going to forgive me. And that's, that is not, God says God forbid to that kind of thing. 
okay? Because I'm covered in grace, I don't have to worry about discipline. I don't have to worry about punishment. I don't have to worry about anything. I just live any way I want to, and God's just got, got it all forgiven. And that's probably the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It's, it's a perversion of grace, or either, either it is a blend, a blend of, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I, you know, I got these other things as well. I let the world creep in and serve the world as well as serving Christian. It's kind of what God is saying, that, that their values and their commitment to Christ is being diluted. The Nicolaitans would probably say something like this. Look, as long as you believe in God, as long as you go to church once in a while, keep up some kind of superficial commitment as a Christian, live any way you want to. You don't have to deny yourself to follow Jesus. You don't have to do anything hard. Just believe in God. Go to church occasionally. Be a nice person. And the false teachers were luring the Christians into food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality, probably one pagan feast where all this was happening. So what our response, what Jesus is looking for is this. We're saved by grace, but we're called to obedience. We're saved by grace, but we're called to obedience, okay? Look at Revelation 2.16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So here's the question that I have dealt with this week as I've looked at that verse. Who's them? Notice, I will come to you and fight against them. Uh, Them is either one of two things. Them is either people in the church who are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who are going the way of the Nicolaitans, who are not true believers, who are pretend, you know, you can pretend to be a Christian, right? You can pretend to love Jesus and pretend to be a follower of Christ and just kind of go through the motions and all of that and yet live in your own heart and your own mind in a very ungodlike way. And so that's, to me, that's probably what he's talking about. If you tolerate this and you don't Here's the thing about false teaching. We don't see everything the same. But this false teaching is leading to immorality. A false, see, we can disagree about a lot of things in Scripture, you know. Um, You know, I've got friends of mine, we disagree about what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. We disagree about eternal security and things like that. But those things don't lead to immorality. When you start teaching things that lead to self-centeredness, it's about me and what I like, what I want, how I, how I want to feel and my money and my health and my goodwill. And all. When you put me at the center, then that's leading to an immoral lifestyle and that's where you got to draw. That's what you can't tolerate is the teaching that leads to immorality. And so I believe he's probably talking about, look, y'all are, y'all are letting people pretending to be Christians lead other people astray, lead them away from Christ. You can't tolerate that. The other idea, it may be actually Christians in the church that he's coming to discipline. So it's either people pretending to be Christians or Christians in the church who've gotten way, way, way off course and Christ is coming uh, to discipline them. So he calls them a community. Repent or risk the judgment that comes from the Lord's mouth. Now watch what happens in verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. First of all, he says, I'll give you some of the hidden manna. Now, we remember manna was the bread from heaven that God fed the Israelites with. Jesus is the living bread, right? He said, see, we have hidden resources to live out our faith that the world can't see. 
We have hidden food, <laughs> hidden sustenance. And primarily that hidden manna is what? It's, it's the Holy Spirit. He's primarily the manna that we have. But guys, we've got all manner of spiritual weapons, of spiritual resources like praise. When you start feeling like Satan's getting the best of you, start praising the Lord. Start singing love songs to Jesus. Lift your eyes up to him. And that's one way to stay faithful to Christ. You've got prayer. You can talk to Jesus anytime, anywhere, any day. They cannot cut you off from Christ. They cannot cut off your prayer life. You always have that hidden manna. Isn't it cool to see God's favor show up? We have God's favor over our life. We have God's word. Man, on Monday when I was having my quiet time, that was right before I was studying all this, it was in Joshua 24, 31. It said, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. You see, they had experienced God's word. And they stayed faithful as long as they had experienced God. And when we relegate God to something we learn and something we think and something we agree with rather than someone that we truly experience directly, what happens? We start crumbling. That's what that verse said. They remained faithful as long as they had some people that had a direct experience with God. When it became secondhand knowledge, my preacher told me, my parents told me, my granddad told me, when that's all they had, they quit serving uh, the Lord. And then he says, I'll give you a stone. Aren't you glad you got hidden manna tonight? He also says, I'll give you a white stone with a new name on it. We don't know exactly what that is. Several ideas for you. Some people think uh, it's the stones from the breastplate of the high priest uh, called the Urim and the Thummim, uh, which was made for making uh, decisions. They, they used those to help make decisions to determine God's will. Some people think the stone is that. It's a way of us to make decisions. Uh, other people think it's a diamond, like a it's like a symbol, you know, diamond rings, a symbol of marriage, that this new stone's a symbol of eternal life, a symbol of God's love for you. Um, another one Another idea is that in the ancient world, when uh, the jury was voting to convict somebody innocent or guilty, they had black stones and white stones. A black stone meant you were guilty, and a white stone meant you were innocent. And so some people think Jesus is talking about that he votes for you. And even if that's not exactly what he's talking about here, that's true. <laughs> that's the good truth to know that Jesus votes for you. His blood has been applied to you. The most likely, most likely, is in the ancient game, sometimes they would give a, a white stone with a name on it to the winner of the games. And that fits with the context, okay? That, that fits with the context a lot better. Look there at that last verse. And, um, and when it says, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name is written which no one knows except him who receives it who gets that the one who overcomes the one who overcomes and so the one who's victorious that fits with the context probably the winner of the games and Jesus gives you a white stone uh, which is a symbol of victory with a new name written on it and I don't know what the new name is maybe it's kind of a pet name that Jesus has for you that you'll have for all of eternity uh, maybe that name says winner <laughs> You know, champion or something like that. But what it is, is when we're faithful to Christ and we don't back away, it's another way of saying the King of kings and the Lord of lords looked at you and says, well done. Well done. Because you followed me, 
you made the best decision a person can ever make in life. Will you stand with me with heads bowed and eyes closed? As we stand with the heads bowed and eyes closed, we have to look at ourselves and locate ourselves tonight. Are we the church that's busy but left our first love? Are we the church that's faithful in the midst of hard times, in the midst of persecution and difficulties? Or are we a people of compromise? Are you feeling Satan tug at your heart tonight to back off a little bit? To not be quite so faithful to your quiet time. Not be quite so faithful to witness. Not be quite so faithful to love people that are different to you. Not be quite so faithful uh, to doing what God wants you to do. Um, kind of getting that idea of uh, just kind of living your own way. Remember, that's the strategy of the evil ones. Let's bow our heads and pray. And uh, as we pray tonight, ask you to pray and ask God, where are you located at tonight? Where does God locate you at? And uh, I finished praying. We're going to have some music from the back. Uh, play softly as we have our time of commitment. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. You'd help us understand what you're saying.